0: weeks ago, my children and I were driving through a Miami neighborhood on our way home, in the middle of my attempts to convince my three-year-old son that the car seat really was not an ideal place to go potty. <laughs> my six-year-old daughter interrupted us to make the following observation. Mommy, she said, this neighborhood is black. Startled, but not surprised, I responded with a question. If this neighborhood is black, then in what kind of neighborhood do we live? White, was her instant response. Now, although a vibrant and dynamic city, Miami is, like many other US cities, segregated. If we wanted our neighborhoods to reflect the racial composition of the city overall, 73% of residents would have to move. So what she was seeing is real. Miami, however, is also an international city that goes beyond racial binaries. In our Miami neighborhood, 91% of residents reported as white on the 2010 census, while 3% of residents reported as black. 54% of residents, however, also reported Latino or Hispanic heritage. So it might have been more appropriate or accurate for her to say that we live in a white or white Hispanic neighborhood, but hey. She's only six. (laughs) So we continued our conversation, and I mentioned to her that it was sometimes difficult to only rarely encounter on our block or at her school people who look like us. And as we pulled into the driveway, she asked me a question that she's never asked me before. Mommy, she said, if we don't like being alone, then why do we live here? Answering her questions about why our community segregated is a lot easier than answering her questions about why we live there anyway. Our nation's laws and policies have made it difficult to eliminate residential segregation, which often leads to schooling segregation. In 1954, the Supreme Court in Brown v. Board of Education declared racially separate but equal schools unconstitutional. By 1974, however, the court in a case named Milken v. Bradley reaffirmed the distinction between unintentional and intentional segregation. As applied to the Detroit public schools, authorities there would not be permitted to draw students from the nearby suburbs to integrate the hyper-segregated black schools of Detroit. It did not matter that some whites had left Detroit in order to avoid integration. Nor did it matter that housing policy had facilitated white flight while keeping blacks trapped in Detroit through the denial of home ownership loans. It didn't even matter that there was no other way to integrate Detroit public schools. Milliken then legitimized, made okay, unintentional segregation. Segregation that is not demanded by the state, but is nevertheless facilitated by the state and by individuals like you and me. Milligan was the beginning of integration's end. And today, American public schools are steadily resegregating. By some measures, American public schools are more segregated today than they were in 1968. In segregated schools, black children are isolated, often with limited access to the economic and social capital that is prerequisite for success in the United States. Segregated schools also isolate white children, but typically with more resources. And by virtue of being educated primarily with other whites in schools that are visibly better resourced, students in white schools learn that the separation of children by skin color and the accompanying disparities in resources is legitimate and normal. But what happens to black students who attend white schools? And how does the law shape what's happening there? Well, there, black students are over-identified for special education and under-identified for gifted programming. There, black students are disciplined at higher rates than their white peers for the same behavior. There, black students encounter curricula devoid of non-white people. In white schools, or even purportedly integrated schools, black students encounter unintentional, yet consistent, and harmful discrimination. Black children, my children, enter educational institutions that are not likely to affirm them. Again, the law has helped shape this experience. In the 2003 Grutter v. Bollinger case, the Supreme Court considered justifications for the use of race in college admissions. Some justifications suggested to the court included our legacy of racism using race-conscious admissions as a counter to structural obstacles like housing segregation or schooling segregation that still limit access to higher education for people of color. Other justifications presented to the court included the idea of justice, the idea that our learning communities, especially public ones, are per se illegitimate if they exclude people of color. A majority of the court, however, affirmed diversity and only diversity as a justification, citing the, quote, compelling interest in the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body. Now, vigorous classroom exchange is important. And students of color can certainly bring alternate perspectives to white classrooms. But admitting students of color To diversify institutions and make the intellectual environment more stimulating for whites should not be the primary reason we think about race in admissions. And by using the rosy language of diversity, the court avoided much more hard questions about why we still have limited access for people of color for higher education in the first place. The court also avoided difficult questions about power and belonging, even after students of color arrive on campus. Admitting students of color to diversify educational spaces is neither power nor belonging, but service. Service by people who have been told that they don't belong, to make things better for people who have been told that they do. My daughter attends an elementary school that says it values diversity. But there are no protagonists of color on the required reading list for this year, and only one such character on the reading lists for the grades ahead. A few days ago, she was completing a book report that asked her to describe her favorite part of a book that we'd read together at home. And she responded that her favorite part was that the main main character was black. The skin color of that character stood out to her, because at her school, where she spends eight hours a day, she is learning that outside of units on slavery or civil rights, Little brown girls don't get to be on the required reading list. Her school may say it values diversity, but when she looks around, she's learning that she does not belong. Now, suggesting this, suggesting that segregation in your neighborhoods or at your kid's school is a problem, even though the Supreme Court said it was unintentional and therefore okay, or suggesting that diversity is not the easy answer to our nation's problems with race, it's hard to hear. I know. I've seen the faces when I bring it up. Some of you might be making those faces right now. Principals ignore my request to discuss book lists, and some teachers become offended at my inquiries about race and power in the classroom. When I mention that our community's elementary schools, the three of them have almost no black children, and the fourth school has them all, Parents respond in frustration that race is simply not relevant. And some may call me the angry black lady. Easier to do that than to move out from behind the superficial language of diversity that the court gave us. Easier to think about segregation as a problem in black schools, but not to think about segregation as a problem in white schools. The price of my admission to white spaces has been silence. But as a lawyer, I know that the law continues to conceal the injustice, that there's are two options people of color are still given in our country. The first is the demeaning and confining option of segregation in black and brown spaces, or the second, service, but never true belonging in white spaces. As a black citizen, I know that my isolation your isolation in white communities is only made dependent by the isolation and marginalization of black people in black communities, and that our democracy, a project founded on notions of power and belonging vested in all people, should not contemplate such an exclusion. As a black mother, I know that I have a choice between making well-intentioned whites feel uncomfortable and raising my daughter without a sense of belonging in her community. So as a lawyer, as a citizen, as a mother, I refuse to pay the price of silence. And instead, I speak out about the problem, the harmful effects of segregation, and the empty and harmful rhetoric of diversity. And I encourage you to break your silence as well. When I answer my daughter's questions about why we live where we do, I talk to her about housing values and proximity to work in language I hope she can understand. I tell her that by design, middle-class black neighborhoods are rare and that public services are still inferior in the ones that do exist. I tell her that we should not have to choose between quality of life and a sense of belonging. And I want to tell her that the benefits still outweigh the costs. But that's not true, is it? The costs of exclusion and isolation and segregation, it's too high for whites and non-whites. And if we want inclusion and belonging and integration, we have to break our collective silence. And we have to do the difficult work of desegregating our educational, our professional, and our residential lives. We can no longer allow the law to draw the contours of integration, belonging, and inclusion for each other. If we fail to do so, if we fail to break our silence, the cost will be more than just my daughter's sense of belonging or the legitimacy of our laws. Or rather the strength and value of our democracy itself. Thank you.